Hey, David. How's it going, man? Hey, Sean. How's it going? We're here. They did not want us to broadcast this tonight because it's been... This is the sixth attempt to get this live. It has taken for this to go through. So huge apologies to you guys for uh, being on standby. Huge apologies to the viewers for being on standby for this, but it, it is such important information. The whole evening's program now is running 30 minutes behind, so we'll have to give the other guests heads up. So without any further ado, you guys know David Whitehead. He's been on here multiple times. Really well-researched in various topics, including cults, the occult, deviant behavior in Hollywood, trafficking. And I have actually watched programs on Scientology and I've seen Mike in action. So thank you very much for coming on, Mike. Really appreciate it. Hi, Sean. Hi, David. Nice to be here. Finally. <laughs> Finally. Yes. Nice to meet so, you, Mike. So I'll let David um, segue in with a little introdu introduction then before we start the questions for Mike. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for uh, bringing me on here, Sean. Really appreciate it. This is an honor. Uh, Mike, I've been following you for uh, some time and I'm really happy to have this opportunity to ask you some questions and chat with you and happy to be on this platform. Um, I'm just a independent researcher, curious about these subjects. Um, and I produced a series a couple of years ago on cults called Cults of Death and Power, where I looked at all types of different cults uh, starting in California. Something's going on in California. I don't know what's going on over there. Um, and then going into different parts of the world, going into the ancient world, um, looking at a lot of current events and, and different structures and things that we see from the framework of what I learned from researching different cults and comparative religion, mythology, etc. So I'm just a curious person. I want to know what the truth is. And that's my mission. So uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And you're a very level-headed person. So you got all these crazies going into these conspiracy theories. But I think what really resonates with the viewers is where you draw the line. So all your links will be in the description box below. And yours as well, Mike. And I urge the viewers to please support the work both of these guys are doing. Mike, do you want to introduce yourself to the viewers, please? Sure. My name is Mike Rinder. I was uh, raised in the Church of Scientology and ended up uh, devoting my life, or the first part of my life at least, to being um, a full-time staff member, actually a sea organization member in Scientology. And, you know, I rose in the ranks in Scientology to become the international spokesperson of Scientology. I was on the board of the Church of Scientology International. I was also the head of the Office of Special Affairs. I left in 2007, or I escaped in 2007. And since about 2009, I have been doing everything I possibly can to uh, tell the truth about what really goes on inside the inner sanctum of Scientology. And where were you in life? How old were you? What was your worldview when you first became interested in Scientology? Uh, Sean, I was six or five and my parents got involved in Australia. Hubbard went there to deliver some lectures. Our next door neighbor, as a matter of fact, uh, went from my hometown of Adelaide to Melbourne to see Hubbard do these lectures and came home 
with these great stories of the, the prodigal uh, L. Ron Hubbard. And that's what caused my parents initially to have an interest and get involved. And then I was really raised in a, what became a Scientology household, operating on the principles of Scientology, which uh, laid out by the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. And when I say the principles of Scientology, I mean Hubbard wrote about everything. He was a prolific writer on the subject of Scientology. He delivered thousands of lectures and his words are considered to be in Scientology, the word of God. And so he covered sort of everything. Like th this guy um, had an opinion and an expertise, at least uh, self-proclaimed expertise on everything. So sort of every aspect of your life is in some ways covered by, well, what does Ron say? Ron is the, the name that Scientologists sort of use reverentially for Hubbard. And there is a sort of a saying in Scientology amongst Scientologists if you don't know what to do, ask yourself, what would Ron do? So my entire life was bound up in the idea that the answers to every problem, the answers to everything about your existence, about the survival of mankind, the future of the planet, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down to how do you wash windows, was to be found in the words of L. Ron Hubbard. Do you have a question, David? Well, I uh, first of all just wanted to say that from my research on different cults, and this is what fascinated me, was that we've got different types of ideologies that are classified as cults. And the big questions that people ask are, how do you differentiate between a cult or a religion or just a philosophy? Um, and I think your story, Mike, is what really helps people understand how to differentiate that. Because would you agree with me that a lot of the cults, including Scientology, will have a dose of truth mixed into it or something that appeals to people at the very least? Um, when you read a lot of different things in Scientology, or I've, I've spoken to people that are part of that on a lower level, um, you'll find yourself agreeing with certain things, right? Like I myself have a fascination with ancient history and uh, free energy technology and the question of are we alone in the universe? And could there be a blending between science and religion that would actually work and serve mankind? And, you know, um, I have questions about the medical industry, uh, the direction that it's gone and the pharmaceutical industry and things like that. Um, and, you know, always looking for alternatives and we all want freedom and we all want peace amongst each other. And we all want solutions to these problems that we all face. And then the poison sneaks in after. So you get the entry level. Uh, there's an old saying that I came across called, it, it kind of goes like this by way of the promise, good men are enslaved. And so what's the promise of Scientology that attracts people into it? that in my opinion has to be layered with certain truths in order to attract human consciousness to it. So what's the promise of Scientology that brings people in? Okay, that's a fabulous question. And let me just say, yes, there is no doubt that there are a lot of things in Scientology that people can agree with. I mean, if it was just complete bullshit, 
nobody would get involved. I mean, you have to have some something that is appealing about it in order to attract people. And certainly at the lower levels or the introductory levels of Scientology, the idea is, is put forth that you will be able to improve your life. You'll be able to have better relationships with your family and friends. You'll be able to solve why it is that you have emotional upsets or why you have unwanted pains in your body, or even a, on a grander scale, this idea that we can, we can sort of, in Scientology, the expression is reverse the dwindling spiral of mankind and make a better world for everyone to live in, a world without war, without insanity, where free men are able to rise to greater heights. This is the, the promise of Scientology. And it is a, a very, you know, I have an, analogized it to the old uh, expression that the, the way you boil a frog is you put him in the cold water and slowly turn up the heat. And eventually, if you, put, if you drop him in boiling water, he just jumps out. If it's gradually getting warmer and warmer, he gets lulled into a sense of security and ends up being a boiled frog. And that's what happens to people in Scientology. There are things that they find that are truths that work, that help them. And they believe that then what's coming afterwards is also going to have the same effect. And when it doesn't, they're looking for the next thing. Oh, well, it did, this didn't exactly accomplish what I hoped, but maybe the next one will, because there's always the hope that this promise of eternal spiritual freedom and enlightenment is just around the corner. The next thing will bring that into full realization. And, you know, the, my answer to the question, what's the difference between a religion and a cult? is a really sim simplistic one and maybe too simplistic. But my answer is, take a look at what happens when you try to leave or when you have left. If you leave the Catholic church or you become a lapsed Jew or you're no longer going to a Christian church or whatever, nothing much happens. If you leave Scientology, you are hounded. If you leave Scientology and you speak up and say things they don't like, they seek to destroy you. And that doesn't happen in like mainstream regular religions. And if I could ask a quick follow-up on that, Sean, because this, I, and you answered my two questions there, Mike, I really appreciate that. And I agree with you. Um, so if, you were a part, if, if I, I heard some of your interviews where you were talking about how you actually were a part of one of the, uh, I guess, one of the arms of this that would basically seek out and destroy the enemies of Scientology. There's a way that they process their enemies. They've relied on research from Sun Tzu and all this kind of stuff um, of how to basically target people that they consider enemies. And I think that was a huge that's a huge element that people can look to to see how a cult can differentiate from uh, some of these other things, right? Ab absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I was the head of what's called the Office of Special Affairs in Scientology, which was a, uh, a rebooting and renaming of the original arm of Scientology. It was called the Guardian's Office. And the Guardian's Office uh, conducted uh, an enormous campaign against the United States and other governments and ultimately were caught. And the leaders of the Guardian's Office ended up being uh, going to federal prison in the United States, including L. Ron Hubbard's wife, uh, for infiltrating, spying on, stealing material documents, trying to destroy people, et cetera, et cetera. So what is so unique about Scientology, and, and perhaps even unique in the realm of cults, is that the idea is Hubbard wrote everything that is the scripture of Scientology. And if it isn't written by Hubbard, it's not considered to be pure Scientology. So these practices of destroying your enemies and going after people and finding out what they're seeking to protect and threatening it and hiring private investigators, et cetera, they're all written down by L. Ron Hubbard. They are actually the policies of Scientology. They are contained in his writings. And though they didn't used to be publicly available with the advent of the internet, they are uh, widely available now. I mean, I have a blog and I have all of these things on my blog of let Hubbard describing, here is how you go about destroying someone who is saying something that we don't like about Scientology. And there is another aspect to this, which I think also goes along with every cult and perhaps also with a lot of religions, but the idea of us versus them, that we are the only people who have the true faith, the true beliefs, the true answers, in Scientology, you say, we have the technology, and the technology is the writings of L. Ron Hubbard that tell you how to conduct your life and how to save the planet, that everybody else is ignorant. Everybody else is uninformed at best and intent upon the destruction of mankind at worst. And that creates... Um, an end justifies the means mindset that becomes very dangerous. You believe that the survival of Scientology and the well being of Scientology is the single most important thing on earth. It is what will allow the world to survive, what will allow every man, woman, and child on earth to attain spiritual freedom. So the, the actions that are taken to seek to destroy people who are designated as enemies of Scientology are very well justified. I mean, it was very well justified in my head when I was doing it. These people are seeking the destruction of mankind. I'm doing something that is saving mankind from these horrible people. So I'm interested, Mike, then, in your own path. You said you got into this at age six through the family. So as a young person, 
how did you interact with other kids? Were you allowed around non-Scientology kids? Did they treat you differently? And what was your education like? And what was the first work you put in for Scientology? Okay, well, when I was growing up, I was in Australia. And, in a, and that was in the, the 1960s. And in Australia at that time, Scientology was effectively banned based on a, an inquiry, a government inquiry in the state of Victoria. And so there were very few Scientologists in Adelaide where I grew up. Like, and to the outside world, I was just a normal kid going to school. I went to a public, you know, actually a private school, but I went to normal schools and nobody at those schools even knew I was a Scientologist or my family was Scientologists at all. Within our family and the connection to the few other families in the community who were Scientologists, we were like a little enclave of believers and Everybody else was the heathens. In Scientology, the, the word for non-Scientologist is wogs. Hubbard coined that, well, he did, Hubbard took that term and calls non-Scientologists wogs. And the wog world is a, the bad world that is uninformed and unenlightened by the brilliance of L. Ron Hubbard. And I existed in the wog world in when I went to school, when I you know, played cricket, what, whatever I was doing, I was in the wog world. And at home, I was in the real world, the Scientology world. And when I graduated high school, I very quickly thereafter joined what is known in Scientology as the C organization. And the C organization is the dedicated elite core of Scientology of people who devote themselves 24-7 to accomplishing the aims of Scientology, living communally, working communally. Uh, you sign a billion-year contract to commit yourself to eternity in achieving the aims of Scientology because Scientologists believe that you live Lifetime after lifetime, your spirit departs this body and will, will uh, take on a new one that you've lived for millions of years before and you'll go on for millions of years in the future and that you will devote the entirety, the eternity of your future to the achieving these aims of Scientology. So when it's, I was- Sorry, Mike, sorry to jump in, but yeah. it's actually a billion year contract? Like, that's not hyperbole, that's- No, no, billion with a B. Oh my and yet, I mean, you can see, <laughs> David, you can see I've got it on, on a number of places on my blog and you can just Google see our contract and it'll come up. And, you know, obviously that's not an enforceable legal contract. I mean, you can't, <laughs> you'd look like a complete idiot walking into court saying, like, this guy signed a billion year contract and he violated his contract, but it, it has, um, perhaps the more powerful uh, enforcement method than the court system, which is the Scientology system. The, the idea that you uh, should never break that agreement and turn against the, the group that is the group saving mankind is a way more powerful 
uh, control mechanism than the threat of a court order. So yeah, it's a billion years. And that is a, a sort of an indicator of the level of commitment that is required and expected of people who are at the top echelon of Scientology. You are a, a dyed-in-the-wool true believer. And the entire senior echelon of Scientology is composed of members of the C organization. Well, go for it, David. You ask him a question and I'll ask him one after that. We'll take turns. <laughs> that sounds good. This, <laughs> this, is, is, this is like a, 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 like a tag team. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Okay. So my next question, you just said it a little moment ago about uh, living communally. Um, I've done a lot of research on uh, different political systems, economic systems. I have a deep interest in that. And I was always curious about, you know, I went into a segment on, on my series about what I was calling political cults, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You think of like Mao Zedong, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, you know, the whole gang, maybe even some people that are alive today. Uh, but anyways, uh, and I was thinking if a cult has, they have to have an operating system that's going to attract the members, keep them in line, keep them engaged. Would you say that system is like a centrally planned economy kind of structure or a centrally planned, almost like communistic type structure where you have the central authority of the L. Ron Hubbard uh, team and the directors and everything, and then they dictate down. So it'd be like a compartmentalized pyramidical type structure with a central controlled, centrally planned communal based ideology. Would that, does that sound about right? Yes, that's absolutely right, David. I don't want you to get the idea, though, that the, the members of the C organization or the top of that pyramid hierarchy are, are uh, the majority. The majority are the people at the bottom. And Scientology, this pyramid has the senior echelons of Scientology are C org members. And then Around the world, there are various Scientology organizations, and those organizations, for the most part, are manned, staffed by people who are called Scientology staff members. And they sign a five-year contract, and they commit themselves to five years for the benefit or to work in the local Scientology church, for a better word. They call it an organization. Uh, or orgs, Scientology orgs. And below that are the people that give the money, the parishioners of Scientology, the people who are out in the world working day to day or inheriting money or being a film star or whatever it is that they do, who come into Scientology organizations and hand over their money in exchange for in some cases, services that are provided by Scientology, and in other cases, just straight up, here's some money to forward the aims of Scientology. So the pyramid is like large at the bottom with people who haven't signed any contract. They are only committed to the ideology of Scientology. And then you have the next level, which is the staff of the local Scientology organizations around the world. And then you have the very top, which is 
the C organization where, and that's the only place where you have communal living and everything is provided for you, you know, your healthcare, your clothes, your food, your shelter, everything. Uh, C Org members get paid basically nothing. They, they don't earn a regular wage because the idea is that they have no need for a regular wage because everything's being provided by the C Org. Of course, the big downside to that is it leaves you in a position of having nothing. So it's, it, it's one of the things that holds people in and prevents them from leaving the C organization is the fact that they don't have any money. A bunch of them don't have driver's licenses. They don't have bank accounts. They, they are like completely shut off from the world operating in a cocoon or a bubble of Scientology C organization. And the outside world is, pre is presented as a, a horribly scary place where you're likely to shrivel up and die very quickly if you leave the protection of the C organization. So to rise up to become the head of external threats for the Church of Scientology must have took considerable time. What was your entry level position and how many different levels did you have to go through to get to there? Okay, well, my entry level position, um, the, the reason that it's called the C organization is because in 1967, L. Ron Hubbard was being pursued by various governments, particularly the British and US governments and the media. And he had been living in England, uh, in Sussex near East Grinstead in a home uh, manor house that he bought there called St. Hill. And he decided that the, the climate was getting too hot and he was going to go uh, buy a boat and sail around in the ocean where he was outside the, the purview of governmental agencies. Because once you're in international waters, you're pretty much home free. So he bought this he bought actually three boats, but the one that he lived on was called the Apollo. And my first job in Scientology was a deckhand on the Apollo. I was a, you know, scrub the decks and, and chip the rust and paint the, the bulkheads and the, out the exterior of the ship. Um, I held many, many positions in Scientology before and a lot of them have enormously complicated acronyms and, and they're very, it, like it takes like forever to explain what the hell does that mean? And what exactly did you do there? But I, I held a lot of different positions from when I joined in 1973 until I became the head of the Office of Special Affairs in the mid 80s. And I then sort of bounced back and forth between the head of Office of Special Affairs and other senior positions in Scientology, but sort of always maintaining this, this uh, I'm a spokesperson for Scientology job. And then eventually I left in 2007 or escaped in 2007 in London, as a matter of fact. Go for it, David. 
Okay. Wow. This is so fascinating. I really appreciate this, Mike. And salute to your bravery because I mean, they must be hunting you down as like enemy number one these days. Um, it's just incredible. So it's as if you used to have that job and then you have left the fold and now others are pursuing you in the way that you've been pursued. Maybe you can say a bit about that, but here's my question. We're going to go deep, dark, and dirty here. Are you aware of any Masonic connections to Hubbard or David Miscavige or any of the other high ranking members? Do they have any other affiliations to any type of other groups that you know of? Uh, some people have even um, compared Scientology to a, a branch of the church of Satan and all this kind of stuff. Do you have anything on any of that? No, there, there is, I can assure you, there is nothing like that. Scientology and Scientologists, and particularly at the senior echelon of Scientology, are 100% fundamentalist Scientologists. There is not, you can't do yoga. That's, wow. that's considered to be a, 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 it's called a squirrel practice a practice that is not 100% conforming. You can, there are certain books you're not supposed to read. You're not allowed to watch TV. You are a 100%. I often say, David, uh, that you know, mainstream religions all have their kooks. They have their fundamentalist arm of you know, the... the the Christians have the Westboro Baptist Church. The, the Jews have the Hasids. The, I mean, there are these very fundamentalist strains. The Mormons have the FLDS. They're very fundamentalist strains of all religions, and they do wacky shit. You know, the, the Islamists will strap a bomb on themselves and go blow up a bus in Tel Aviv. I mean, that's nuts. But they're doing it because they are believing something, and that's a fundamentalist belief. Scientology is 100% fundamentalists. You cannot be a Scientologist and be a wavery, wishy-washy, Hubbard called it a panty-waisted dilettante. You can't be anything but a 100% dedicated Scientologist in order to call yourself a Scientologist. And that is... One of the other hallmarks of, of a real cult is you, there's no edges. You're either in or you're out. You're either with us or you're against us. And the, that, that is very, very true in Scientology. You're either 100% you're either committed Hubbardite and total conviction that L. Ron Hubbard has the answers to everything, or you're not a Scientologist. So the phrase head of external threats implies that there would probably be internal threats. I'm wondering if there was a head of internal threats, or if that came under your remit, and also what would be the dirtiest tactics used to sabotage both external and internal threats? Okay, well, the actual the actual title was the head of the Office of Special Affairs. It's much more euphemistic. There are a lot of things in Scientology, the euphemisms, the, the spy department of Scientology is called the Information Bureau. And, you know, this is all George Orwellian, 1984, you know, war is peace. 
the, the terminology in Scientology, particularly in this area, is very, very euphemistic. So it was the head of the Office of Special Affairs, and that composed uh, or the three main things that were done in, in that were public relations, legal relations, government relations, and contained within underneath those were the structures of how you prevent something becoming a legal problem, how you prevent something becoming a public relations problem or a media problem, government problem. And that entailed dealing with what were called external threats, which were people who were outside of the now the operation of Scientology who were creating problems for Scientology and internal threats. Those who were still within the organization in some fashion, but presented a threat in some way. Like, for example, someone who was uh, threatening that I'm gonna go to, to the police and report that I'm being held against my will. That was an internal threat. The person who's escaped and gone to the police and is reporting that I was held against my will is an external threat. And they are treated uh, in many cases similarly, but not entirely. And the fundamental principle that Hubbard laid forth that is the operating basis of everything that's done in the Office of Special Affairs is that anybody who attacks or threatens to attack Scientology has big, sordid crimes, that they are doing so because they are scared that Scientology is going to expose their big, sordid crimes. And this is a very, very exact thing that Hubbard wrote. And it's like I said, it's on my blog. I, I have this posting on my blog called the Dealing with Critics of Scientology, They All Run Hubbard Playbook. And it lays out all of these documents and explains how you are supposed to interpret them. But this is a fundamental idea that if you're wanting to attack or do some harm or expose Scientology, it only comes from your own horrible sordid crimes. And Hubbard says, what you do is you find what those are. You hire private investigators, you dig through their lives, you take their garbage, you listen to their phone calls, you get their bank records, whatever, to find what these horrible sordid crimes are. And if you haven't found them yet, it's okay. You can just accuse them of having those big sordid crimes because they are there. So you, you will be right. You may be wrong on the particulars, but you will be right because those people absolutely have horrible sordid terrible crimes. They are child molesters. They are, you know, it's the same litany of things that you see when you are demonized, when, when throughout history, anybody has sought to demonize others and make them less than human. And that's what Scientology does, is it makes those people who uh, it disagrees with and, and denominates his enemies into less than human. And 
So you ask, well, so what's the worst thing that has been done? I don't know. It, it sort of depends on who you are because part of the technology of L. Ron Hubbard is to find out what you are seeking to protect and threaten that. So if it's your job, it's to get you, you threaten your job. And if you don't acquiesce to the threat to actually get you fired, if it's your family, it's to threaten your family or threaten your relationships with your family. And if you don't accede to the threat, then cause the rift in the family. So it's, you know, um, there were people who had a particular affection for cats. So if they were speaking out against Scientology, the animal services would be called on them to come and take away their cats with reports that they had, you know, they, they were keeping like 50 cats in an in a, in a underground shelter and not feeding them. It, 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 it depends on what it is that's important to you. And that's a part of the, the quote, technology of L. Ron Hubbard of how you deal with people who are enemies of Scientology. Wow. How are, one thing I've seen a lot is uh, the use of guilt and shame and uh, public pressure, or not public pressure, but like group pressure, right? Like peer pressure within these various cults. How's that used in Scientology? That's the first part. And then the second part, I've heard you characterize the current head of Scientology, David Miscavige, as a sociopath. I wondered if you could comment on that. And do you see that kind of behavior um, a lot at the, at the top levels of that pyramid of, uh, pyramidical structure? Uh, okay, so the first part is guilt is a, is a massive um, a massive tool that is used to control people in Scientology. But understand, David, there is, a, there is a twist to it. And it is a brilliant twist that Hubbard put on to this idea of guilt, which is he said, and every Scientologist takes this to heart 100%, and it is a fundamental tenet of Scientology, that if you are feeling unhappy, you're upset, something bad happens to you, it is because of something you have done. Something that you have done that has caused this to happen to you. And in Scientology, it, it sort of slangly referred to as, what did you do to pull this in? What have you done that caused you this pain, this upset, this doubt, this concern, this sickness. And so the guilt in Scientology is, is very self-inflicted. It's based on the idea that, oh my God, if David Miscavige just punched me in the face, what did I do to create that? Oh, something i've done something i've done something bad what is it what is it what's what have i done that has caused that to happen to me and this is a, an incredibly powerful glue that sticks people to scientology because hubbard also says that the only reason that you will want to leave Scientology, which is the greatest good that has ever happened to mankind, blah, 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 
is because you have done bad things to Scientology. That if you're wanting to leave or you're doubting Scientology, it's because you've done something bad against it or had bad thoughts or bad intentions about it. And that if you uncover those, you will unburden yourself and suddenly you will see, oh, this was all just a big, terrible mistake. And so guilt in Scientology is a massively, massively powerful glue that sticks people in, but it's not quite done in, in the most part like you, you commonly think of guilting someone. Like, oh, I'm going to shame you because I saw you uh, walking around uh, in, you know, in, a woman, in women's clothing. So I'm going to guilt you. So no, that's in a Scientologist's mind is what did I do? And this is, this is more powerful than the external guilting of someone. If you can persuade people that this is true, that their happiness, their well-being, their good health, everything about them is going to be determined by whether they've done something bad or not, then you easily get them to believe that the cause of their pain is themselves. So you have the bizarre state of affairs of, you know, and it's been being reported a lot recently uh, with this with this criminal prosecution of Danny Masterson, the Scientologist actor who is accused by a number of women of having raped them. And the stories of those women are what happened when they reported their rape to Scientology was, what did you do to pull it in? You need to find out what you wow. did that caused this to happen to you. So victims, and there are lots of victims in Scientology, are victim shame. But they're victim shamed by the fundamental principle of Scientology that if something bad happened to you, you did something to cause it. So if you want to lead the C organization, you are expected or you believe that it's because you've done bad things. So second part of the question, is David Miscavige a sociopath? Uh, without question. And I read this really brilliant book fairly soon after I escaped. Um, it's called The Sociopath Next Door by a Harvard professor called Martha Stout. And it's a very easy read. It's put in simple terms. And I'm reading this book and I'm going, oh, my fucking God. This, that's exactly, I mean, just page after page after page. This is exactly how this guy operates. This is exactly what he does. The, the, the traits of a sociopath are, are 100% uh, descriptive of David Miscavige. Why did you leave Scientology, Mike? And has this mission put your reputation and physical being in jeopardy? Um, I left Sean because I finally woke up, but it took me a long time. Um, it's not a, it's not a overnight thing where just suddenly one day you wake up. I mean, 
even after I escaped the Sea Organization, I still believed in Scientology. Like I escaped the Sea Org, I, I, you know, left my wife and two children and escaped the Sea Org, and I was still a Scientology believer. It takes a long time to undo these things. Um, it's a bit of a long story, but ultimately, a lot of credit goes to to John Sweeney of the BBC, who I the reason I was in London at the minute was because he was doing a program about Scientology and particularly focused on David Miscavige. And I was there as the spokesperson. And John was asking me on camera, you know, has David Miscavige ever struck you? I have eyewitness reports that he has beaten you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm there denying it. No, this is bullshit. No, we're going to sue you, blah, blah, blah. And it was totally true. And I knew exactly who the people were that he had spoken to. They were people that I used to work with who'd been in the same room with me. I'd get beaten up. They'd get beaten up. It wasn't like there was some, you know, mystery people who were making these allegations. They knew exactly who it was. And I, you know, in my history of being a spokesperson for Scientology, there's plenty of things that I had lied about. But I believe that they were lies that were based on fundamental principles of Scientology. You know, you're not supposed to expose the higher levels of Scientology teachings until people are ready for it and have paid for everything before and uh, are spiritually enlightened enough and that you will do them spiritual harm if that's exposed. So when I sat on national TV with Katie Couric and she's asking me about Xenu and OT3, which is some of this stuff, and I'm flat out denying it, I'm thinking, you know, this is for the benefit of people. This is like, this is, I can't do something that goes against my conscience. But when John Sweeney's asking me, well, is David Miscavige physically assaulting people? I'm thinking, is this really why I got into Scientology to protect this guy from, because he's beating people up and that that's a good thing to be protecting? And that really sort of, um, in, in some respects, was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I got out very shortly thereafter, like I said, in London. And like I said, as a Sea Org member, I walked out the door of L. Ron Hubbard's former office in 37 Fitzroy Street, uh, just by the GPO tower there. And I had a briefcase. I had two Blackberry phones, a briefcase, the clothes on my back, and that was it. And I was in London. So I didn't know where I was going. I didn't have anywhere to go. I just knew I had to get out that nothing, there was nothing good that was going to happen if I stayed. And that if I didn't get out, then I probably wouldn't be able to get out uh, just because of the circumstances of, there's a, there's a lot that goes into every one of these little stories, but that, that's the answer to your question. Thanks. If I have got time for one more, Sean. Yeah, go for quick. it. Okay. Um, it seems to be that certain cults attract <clears throat> different tiers of society, right? Mm -hmm. And Scientology has been around for a while, and it really does appear to also attract a lot of people from Hollywood, 
a lot of people from, you know, higher <clears throat> levels of business, et cetera. Could you comment on that? Just how prevalent and popular is this amongst what we would call the elites or Hollywood or these types of celebrities, or is it just a few here and there, or does it actually cater more towards um, those types of people? Just to add well, on to it, that, the most the most common thing that's coming up in the live uh, viewers right now is is that to ask you about Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is a fundamentalist Scientologist. I mean, he got sucked in by his uh, uh, first wife, Mimi, who was the daughter of a very prominent Scientologist. And he, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology. And I, that would be a whole show in and of itself. But I want to answer David's question because I think it's actually more, more important, which is Hubbard targeted celebrities. He wrote that celebrities influence people in how they think and what they do, and they set the trends in society. He created organizations called celebrity centers which are devoted entirely to dealing with celebrities. And they pitch Scientology to celebrities, particularly the big one in Hollywood, and there is a big celebrity center right in Hollywood. They pitch themselves as, we have the technology of communication, that if you want to be able to communicate well, we have the technology of communication, how to communicate. And every person who is in the performing arts is by definition communicating to an audience. So it is a very, uh, it's a great hook to say to celebrity actors, musicians, artists of any description that we can help you communicate better to your audience. And that's the hook that is used to get them in. And back in the 70s and 80s, there was quite a lot of, of big time celebrities that got into Scientology. But if you'll note, since the 90s, there's not really anybody new. It's the same old, same old. It's John Travolta, Tom Cruise, Kirstie Alley, uh, they're, they're like the same faces and things that get mentioned. The only really new celebrity Scientologist is Elizabeth Moss. And that's because she was raised a Scientologist. Her father was um, uh, a longtime manager of Chick Corea. And they have been a Scientology family since she was a child. And so she has been raised in Scientology and became a movie star or a TV star first and after being a Scientologist. John Travolta and Tom Cruise were celebrity stars and then came into Scientology. But these days, that doesn't happen. I mean, it, nobody comes into Scientology these days. If you have access to Google, you're an absolute moron if you walk into a church of Scientology without doing a Google search. And the instant you do a Google search, it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know, I'm not, if I'm going to go in there, I'm not even going to give them my real name because I'm afraid that they're just going to, uh, you know, pursue me until the end of time. And that's advice that I give to anybody who 
says that they just want to go in and get their side of the story. I say, well, go for it. You know, get their side of the story. Just don't give them your real name and address or phone number because they'll never let go of you. Mm-hmm. We've just got a couple of minutes left um, for a few viewer questions. While they come in, I'd just like to ask the viewers if you would like to see Mike and David come back on to do a whole show on why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology, please put a one in the live chat right now. And we've got a couple of questions coming already then. So what happened to Shelley Miscavige? Okay, another long story. Shelley Miscavige fell into disfavor with her husband and he had her sequestered in a facility that is a super secret facility of the Church of Spiritual Technology. The Church of Spiritual Technology is this organization that is at the top of the hierarchy of Scientology, created by L. Ron Hubbard, to preserve his writings and lectures for eternity on etched stainless steel plates buried in vaults in titanium containers filled with argon gas. There is a property that is in... uh, San Bernardino County at the top of uh, a mountain range there. And that is a very well protected secret location that very few Scientologists are aware of and even less have ever visited. And that is where Shelley was sent to be um, kept out of sight and out of mind. And she has remained there to this day. I believe that Shelley is waiting for the return of L. Ron Hubbard to vindicate her. Well, final question then. Is Scientology linked to the government? No, not at all. Scientology is very, very anti-government. Uh, that was a, another... There were two, two, or two things on Earth that L. Ron Hubbard decreed as the enemies of the people. One is psychiatry, and that is way uh, over and above everything and anything. Psychiatry is the evil incarnate that has been evil and destroying mankind for eons. Um, That primarily is based on the fact that when he first wrote Dianetics in 1950, he tried to send it to the American Psychiatric Association, and they told him that he was a quack. So they became public enemy number one, and then public enemy number two is governments, because he also believed that governments were persecuting him and seeking to destroy his good work because they wanted to collect his taxes. Well, huge thank you to both of you coming on this evening. We've got all your links in the description box below the video. Do you want to just respectively tell the viewers then where they can find you, what your preferred method of contact is, and how they can support you? Well, uh, you can find me on Mike Rinder's blog, which is MikeRindersBlog.org. And that's the best place to reach out to me. You can put comments there. You can also find all these things that I've been referring to, Sean, you know, these documents, this this, uh, one particular blog post that I did that sort of collects up all the Hubbard worst of writings about how you deal with critics of Scientology and explains them. And for people who've listened to this that are unfamiliar with Scientology, that's probably a really good place to start. But that's the best, MikeRindersBlog.org. And are you still out there, David, or have you been deplatformed? 
I've mostly been deep, deep platforms, but I'm coming through a resurrection process um, where I'm on all the uh, platforms where they don't ban and censor you. So I no longer have my YouTube channel. Um, so you can find me. All the links are on my website, dwtruthware.com. And then also go and check out my collaborative project with Michael Tessarian, unslave.com. Those are the best places to find out where I'm at because that changes regularly these days. <laughs> all right. Again, Huge thank you guys for coming on. Have a great rest of your weekend. And I have got to move on with the show now. So take care. Thank you, Sean. Nice. Thank you, David. Nice thank chatting you. with Pleasure. you, Michael. I learned a lot. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, great. it was brilliant. Fascinating. Thank you. I mean, a great rest of your Wednesday, not weekend. Cheers, Michael. Good night. Thank All right. So if you're watching this, then... We are now getting to the half-hour mark. That was our first hour of Atwood Unleashed. Looking at the chat, it seems like everybody was absolutely fascinated by that. It was an absolutely uh, compelling insight that Mike laid down there. I could tell he was cutting his answer short just to fit in the hour, but it would be an honor and a privilege to get Mike back on if he would be up for it. Like he said, he could do a whole show on why Tom Cruise stays in Scientology. And I think we need to know a lot more about how they use celebrities to manipulate the mindset of the public. I'd also like to know a lot more about what Mike did in his capacity as, what was his uh, official title again? It's a long one in his official capacity as head of external threats for the Church of Scientology. So there's so much more there we could go with. So next up, Johan Grillo from the front lines of Mexico. I mean, if there's a cartel massacre, he goes out to the crime scene. He's been in Mexico for years, really brave guy. We've had him on here. We've, he's been on Joe Rogan. Then Kirby Summers on Maxwell. Then Richard Gage on 9-11. So that is what we've got coming up next on our Patreon. In the description box below this video is the Patreon tiers link. If you want to join the community we're building on Patreon, click on those links and tiers two and three. Get access to the next two hours. So I'm going to have to move on right now because we are a little bit behind. Thank you for staying with us tonight. Really appreciate it. And again, apologies for the delay this evening due to the technical difficulties, but thanks for sticking around. It was really worthwhile to hear David and Mike. All right, take care.